And now we come to our time where we open the Word of God, and I invite you this morning to turn with me once again to Luke's Gospel, but this week turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 is where we'll be for this week, and Lord willing, next week as well. We are in the middle of a series about biblical discipleship, and everything that I'm teaching and preaching here uh, at church on Wednesday night and on Sunday mornings is the focus is on being true believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that look like? What are the qualifications of being true disciples of the Lord? On Wednesday nights, we're systematically working verse by verse verse through the book of Acts to see how the church of the Lord Jesus Christ began and how to get our thinking, how to get our thoughts and our actions and how we live, how we worship, uh, how we witness like our brothers and sisters that came before us. There needs to be a return or a reformation of true biblical discipleship and true biblical Christianity as a whole. The cookie-cutter, easy-believism, cheap grace, K-love, fun-seeking only popular Christianity of our day will not stand against evil. It will not stand against temptation. It will cower, it will conform, it will submit to the world because it is not real. It is not the real thing. Ultimately, we are doing this because we desire to be the real deal. We want to be the genuine article. The genuine article. We don't want to be the counterfeit. Jesus does not want counterfeits. He calls for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. He desires for the real deal and that's what He's going to get. He will not accept haphazard, half-hearted, fence-straddling decisions. So we have looked for the last couple of weeks at that true disciples are not of the half-hearted nature. One must be truly all in with the Lord Jesus or not at all. And in the passage we're about to read, the Lord Jesus makes similar remarks to what we read in uh, Luke 14, uh, but, but there are some slight uh, uh, additions and nuances that we need to give attention to. So look with me at Luke 9. We're going to read verses 18 through 26 to your hearing, and I want to speak to you upon this question. Who do you say he is? Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 18. This is the word of God. And it came to pass as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them saying, whom say the people that I am? They answered, saying, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised on the third day. And he said to them, it said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is it a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be a castaway? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his glory and in his Father's 
and in the and the whole and of the holy angels. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have read and we have heard your words, not man's. So God, we do pray that in the time that we have remaining together as we consider your holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word, Father, we pray that you would make this applicable to each and every heart and to each and every life, Lord. Father, remove all distractions. Father, we pray that you would put us before your face here and now, seated before your throne to hear from you and not me. God, get me out of the way. Speak to your people this day. And as your word goes forth, we pray that your purpose will be done. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Hearts to receive and wills to apply. These things we ask in Jesus' precious, holy, worthy, and strong name. Amen. The Lord Jesus' public ministry is about to draw to a close. It's coming to a close. Calvary is not too far away. Uh, uh, these things that the Lord Jesus is doing, these miracles and everything that he's doing, and word is getting back to King Herod, and to him it's his worst nightmare. He, he doesn't know if this is this man called Jesus or if this is John the Baptist who has been returned from the grave. And the apostles re returned from a missionary journey that Jesus has set them on. He gave them the capability to heal uh, diseases, to cast out demons, and now they're back. And, and then when a great multitude found out where Jesus, was, where, where Jesus was at, they tracked him down, listened to him preach about the kingdom of God. And this is one of the places where we read about the feeding of the 5,000. And as you, many of you probably already know, that was just 5,000 men. They didn't record the women and children at that time. So it could have been as many as 20,000 or more uh, that the Lord Jesus fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. Then we come to the passage that we're focusing on. Our outline this morning has three points, and I want us to dive right into this point. Number one, look what it says in verse 18 as we think about the inquiry. The inquiry. Jesus is inquiring about something. He's a, he asked him a question. Look what it says in verse 18. And it came to pass as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. Jesus was alone with the disciples and they were praying. They were in a prayer meeting. Prayer was very important to our Lord Jesus. It should be very important to us as well. I brought many a message about prayer. Miss Ann put together a tremendous program uh, back in the early spring about Prayer, the 24 hours of prayer. Probably wouldn't hurt to look at doing that again. Prayer is very important to the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it should be to each and every person who follows after him. It should be very important to each of us as well. During this prayer time, Jesus asks a question. He inquires of them the most important question that can be asked. Jesus loved to ask questions. That was part of, that was, that was part of his uh, preaching and teaching philosophy. But this question is the most important of all that he asked. It is the most important question that has ever been asked. And that is, who is Jesus? That question, Jesus broke that question into two parts. He says, who do they say that I am? Who do others say that Jesus is? The apostles, the disciples answered back to him. They said that, well, others think that you, you, you might be John the Baptist. Herod seems to think that you're Don, John the Baptist come back from the dead because he's so riddled with guilt for having John beheaded. 
Some thought that uh, uh, it, it might have been Elijah coming back from heaven because Elijah had not died. Or maybe another uh, Old Testament prophet. But how does the world view Jesus Christ today? What does the world beyond those doors think of Jesus? They think that he, he, he may have been a, a good man, a moral man, a, a good teacher. He taught some morally good things. There's a ministry called Ligonier Ministries that was founded by Dr. R.C. Sproul. He's gone on to be with the Lord, I think, some three or four years now. Uh, every year since 2014, Ligonier partners with Lifeway. And they put out a survey called the State of Theology. And they ask Bible-related questions to kind of get a pulse of the, the spiritual pulse of the world. Last year, one of the questions that they asked, is says 45% of the people who took the survey said they profess belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Only 45%. That's less than half. Less than half of the people that took that survey say that they profess that Jesus rose on the third day. That, that the Bible is accurate in defining who Jesus truly is. 38% believe Jesus was created. That he was not begotten of the Father, but he was created. That he was not deity. That he, that he was and is not deity. That he is not God. 28% said that Jesus was simply a good man and not God at all. 12% were unsure of that statement. In that very same survey, the statement was made true or false. Even the uh, smallest of sin is, deserves eternal damnation. 54% agreed with that. 54% agreed that the, 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 well, what we would consider small, insignificant sins don't deserve eternal damnation. That's to the shame of the church. We've traded the true gospel which leads to repentance for a false one that pulls in huge crowds. Too much of the world out there, to much of the world, their view of the Lord Jesus is very, very low. If they're not a Christian, to them, uh, 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 to people that aren't Christian, that aren't religious, Jesus is just the figurehead of the Christian religion. Just like Muhammad is the figurehead of Islam or Buddha for Buddhism. Some who have been raised in a Christian upbringing or who have been Christianized somewhat by the culture may profess with their lips the right thing and, and, and may even, in fact, say the right things about the Lord Jesus. But as I've read to you, and I'm going to give it to you again, Matthew 15, verse 8, the people honor me with their uh, lips, but their hearts are far from me. Hearts are far from me. They say one thing, but they act the next. They, they truly act in a different light. James chapter 2, 19, it says, Thou believest there is one God? Good. In fact, when the way that's written, James is really kind of being cynical there, being a little sarcastic. You believe there is one God? Good. Good for you. So do the devil. So do the demons. Yet they believe and they tremble. There is a difference between head knowledge and saving knowledge. If you would have asked me right before April of 2010 who was Jesus, I would have answered the Son of God, but yet I was just as lost as yesterday's Easter egg. Your parents knowing the Lord is not saving faith. Your grandparents knowing the Lord is not saving faith. Church attendance and VBS and being part of Christmas plays your whole life is not saving faith. They are not salvific knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The demons know who Jesus is too. Yet they tremble. R.C. Sproul writes in his commentary on Luke, he said, Satan, he knew who Jesus was during his entire earthly ministry. 
That Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. As much as he understood that intellectually, he hated it passionately. He knew who Jesus was, but he had no interest in following him, only in destroying him. In the biblical record, the first ones who recognized the deity of Christ behind the hidden veil of his humanity were the demons from hell. So for them, it wasn't a problem for a lack of knowledge of Jesus' identity. It was a lack of affection for the one who was the Son of God. So the Lord Jesus then asked the twelve. He is asked, okay, first, who do the people out there say say that I am? And now, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus to you? How many people honor Jesus with their lips, yet their hearts are far from him? All of the perspectives that the world has, I'll confess to you, at one point or another, I went through each and every one of them. Prior to my conversion, I've outright denied. I believe that Jesus has just been a a, a figurehead of of, uh, Christian religions, just like other religions have a figurehead. And I had a false conversion and believed that Jesus was the Son of God, but it was a superficial head knowledge and not true salvation, not true saving faith. What about you? Who is Jesus Christ to you? Who do you say that Jesus is? Because that is the crux. That is the centerpiece of discipleship. You cannot be a true believer, a true Christian, a true disciple, unless you have true saving faith in Jesus for who he truly is. It's one thing to know about Jesus. It's completely different to trust him for the salvation of your soul and not do so in some haphazard fly by night, got my ticket punched just don't, and, and, you know, just so I don't go to hell, but still live like the world and there not be anything required of me. That is why a clear, concise explanation of the gospel is always necessary. We sing the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved the what like me. Wretch, wretch. And the Sunday school lesson touched on that subject this morning. We got off of that, but it it really did. There needs to be a balance. Until you see yourself as the sinner that you are, you will not see Christ for who he properly is. Until you seek Jesus, and and there can be two, and Wes brought this up, there can be two ends of that spectrum. You can think that you are just, just, just too far gone, that you have just done or said something that can never be forgiven. God can forgive everybody else under the sun, but he cannot forgive me. I've said this before and I'll say it to you again. You do not have the authority. You do not have the ability. You do not have the power to tell God Almighty who he cannot forgive. While there is breath in a person's lungs, salvation is possible. As it says in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, what is it, chapter 6, when it lists all of those things, all of how the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, all of the immoral people, all of the, the sexually immoral, all of the stuff, the murderers, all of it. And then it says, and such were, W-E-R-E, were, past tense, some of you. As long as there is breath within someone's body, they are not Far, they are not out of God's reach. Salvation is possible. But you, um, 
And then there's the other end of the spectrum. And there's the other end of the spectrum. There are those who don't think, uh, who think too much of themselves. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. And the, because that's the lie from the, the, the whispers of the world. That not every, that everybody is in some way or form innately good. Really, was Adolf Hitler good? Jeffrey Dahmer, was he good? Joseph Stalin, was he good? The Roman Emperor Nero, was he innately good? You know, but, but people, people always want to run to, to those guys that think they're the true evil ones. But if you get right down to it, if it were not for the restraining hand, the restraining hand of God upon us, any one of us could make those people look like choir boys. Romans chapter 3 tells us, chapter 3 verse 10 tells us there is none righteous, not even one. Not even one single person. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There is not one. And until we see ourselves as the wretched sinner and we realize that we're in danger, the danger that lies ahead of us before the just and holy God, the wrath that awaits us, it's not until then that we see Christ as that life raft, that, that, that lifeline, that we see Him as the mercy from God, the salvation, and then and only then do we see Him as precious. So I ask you, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus Christ to you? Because the heart and the mindset and the spirit in that answer will determine whether or not you are a true disciple of him or not. Because as we have learned over the last couple of weeks, discipleship and salvation go hand in hand. There cannot be one without the other. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You don't just stop there with salvation. James chapter 2 verse 26 says, For just as uh, the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So what you think of Jesus will determine if you're going to come after him, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. It is the belief in him that drives you. It is the centerpiece to your worldview. What you think of Jesus Christ will touch every area of your life if you don't think much of him then the rest of your life is going to tell it if you think much of him then it will be evident in every area of your life this belief is the centerpiece of discipleship it is the centerpiece of what of being a true follower of the lord jesus christ you will go no further if you do not hold the lord jesus christ dear to you and in the highest regard You'll be like the stony ground here that we talked about a few weeks ago. You hear the things about salvation. Man, that sounds good. I like it. Fantastic. The, yes, save, save me from judgment, from hell. But this stuff about following the cross, about following him and bearing the cross and self-denial, I, I didn't bargain for all that. That's, that's, not what, that's not what I want. And then they walk away from their shallow profession. Profession. If you do not love him more than father, mother, brother, sister, spouse, and children, then you cannot be his disciple. Your view of him must surpass everything and everyone else. Peter responded to this question. He said, Jesus, you are the Christ of God. He believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Son of God. What about you? What about you? Because as we follow the passage, the Lord Jesus charges the twelve don't go out and tell anybody this. Not yet. 
It's not time to tell it. You go out and tell people this, they're going to try to uh, make me king on the spot and bypassing the need for the ultimate sacrifice. Now follow what the Lord Jesus says in, in the text. He asked, who do you say that I am? Peter responds to Christ of God. Jesus says, go, don't go tell anyone because the Son of Man must be rejected, must, be sl- must suffer, be slain, and raised the third day, which comes to the second point. Beginning with verse 23. We've seen the inquiry, now we see the intensity. The intensity. Look what it says in verse 23. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, which we've, we, we, this is exactly what he says in, in, in uh, Luke 14, only one little difference. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Because Jesus is about to deny himself the use of his deity. He would not use his divine power to stop or alter what was about to happen. He had the capability to do it. At any point in time, he could have called it off. He could have just wiped everybody else out, started over new. He could have stopped it at any point in time, but he did not. He did not use his deity. He did not, he did not go there. He humbled himself, as Philippians chapter 2 tells us. He humbled himself. He had the capability to stop what was about to unfold, but he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, Jesus is not telling us that we have to run out and get ourselves crucified. We don't have to run out and get ourselves killed and try to get ourselves killed for the cause of Christ. Jesus is not teaching that in order to be his disciple that we have to live some type of ascetic lifestyle. Many have thought that down through church history. That's why there's things called monasteries. That's why monasteries existed. A belief that in order to be a true follower of the Lord, you must shut yourself off from the world and just torture yourself. You must suffer on a continuous basis. That's not what the Lord's commanding here. That's not what the Lord is commanding us to do. But we are to enter into a life of self-denial and to do so daily, daily. The word daily is the little caveat that we don't find in, 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 in the other passages, which is the reason that one of the reasons that led me to, the, to this text. The Christian life is not a weekly ritual. It is a daily walk yielding our wills to his. Here are some keys to self-denial. There's got to be a willingness to obey Christ. There's got to be a willingness to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, even if the world says that it's okay. If God has forbidden it, then that means do not do it. If the Lord has commanded to do it and the world says don't do it, we must obey God rather than man. For the Lord Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love him, do what? Keep his commandments. Taking up one's cross, self-denial, is another way of saying continual repentance. Because repentance is not just a one-time thing. It's a lifestyle. It is not just saying that you were sorry just one time, and it's not just a, a, a one-time turning from sin only to turn back later on. It is turning from your sin and turning to Christ, which is trusting and believing. We walk, we are to walk in the newness of life. He who is within Christ, he who is in Christ is a new creature, and we're to walk in that newness of life, walk in that repentance. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31, he had to die daily. He had to crucify that old man. He had to crucify that flesh and those old fleshly desires. He had to put them to death through obedience to the Lord Jesus. This combined with what Jesus is teaching here means that in order for us to live, 
Something's got to die. In order for us to live and to walk and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, something has to die. We must die to ourselves, our desires for the things of the flesh, and our desire really to be our own boss. Because as I'm learning over and over and over, yes, God is sovereign. You and I are in control of absolutely nothing. We can control what we do to some degree, but we can't control what somebody else does. All we can do is focus on Him, obey what He tells us to do, and trust Him to handle the rest. He is the one who is in control of all things, and we've got to die daily. Some of us have to, to, to die daily to that very notion that we're not in control, no matter how much we want to be control freaks, no matter how much we think that we're captains of our own fate, masters of our own destiny. We're not. He holds the times and the seasons and everything in His hands. He is in control of all things. We just obey Him and leave the rest to Him. We obey Christ and let Him take care of the rest. And as we die daily, as we die to ourselves, the Lord molds us and shapes us and conforms us more into the image of Christ. So there needs to be a, a, um, there needs to be a willingness to obey and there needs to be a willingness to serve others. How many people jump up at the opportunity to serve others? We're supposed to. We're supposed to. We're supposed to be servants. Philippians chapter 2 verse 4 says, Not merely looking after your own personal interests, but also after the interests of others. A true disciple, a true follower of the Lord Jesus is to have the heart of a servant patterned after the greatest servant of all, the Lord Jesus. We see that when he washed the feet of the disciples. I've talked about that many times. It's one of my most favorite chapters in all the Bible in the Gospel of John of how Jesus, the, the incarnate Son of God, who was there in the beginning. He created those feet that he's getting ready to get down and wash all the dirt and the dung and everything that, that, that they may have stepped in in that day in the ancient world because they didn't have shoes like we do. He humbled himself. He got on that floor and washed their feet. Even the feet of Judas. He washes their feet and, and shows the, the, the heart and the actions and the mindset of a servant. And then the ultimate servitude when he went to the cross to die for our sins. Mark chapter 10 verse 45, Jesus said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A willingness to serve is not only to be found in the hearts and the lives of pastors and deacons, they are to be evident in all of the lives of every disciple of Christ. Thirdly, there needs to be a willingness to suffer for the cause of Christ. That's where a lot of people say, nice, this isn't for me. This isn't for me. This, this, this is where I, I, I draw the line. You think about that crowd in Luke chapter 14 when he had the, 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 the myriads of people that were there hanging on to his every word. As soon as he started talking about carrying crosses and suffering and denying self, you know, some of them had to just say, ah, that's it for me. I'm out of here. I'm going to the house. This is where the crowd gets thinned out. It's here that in Luke 14 where Jesus had to, where Jesus turned people away. They were turned away at the hard sayings. They don't want Jesus to, they don't want following Jesus to cost them anything. They want the gain without the pain. And as we read in John 6, verse 66, 
as a result of his hard sayings, many walked away from him and did not walk with him anymore. Perhaps it's that part that people who deny Jesus is as the Son of God, maybe it's perhaps that that they don't want to hear. They don't want to embrace the consequences that Jesus set forth. Because when it comes right down to it, you either deny Christ and follow yourself, or you deny self and follow, and follow Christ. You can't follow both. You can't follow Christ and follow yourself. Being a disciple of Jesus is not a life of guaranteed ease and comfort. Discipleship will cost us to get out of our comfort zone. It may not cost us our lives. It may, but it may not. It may, but it will cost us something. Discipleship will cost us to get out of our comfort zone. It may cost us, uh, we may have to suffer slander, ridicule, mistreatment, false accusations. It may even take, take, get to the point to where it costs us our very lives. That is why the Lord Jesus said in Luke 14, 33, that you must be willing to forsake everything, everything if you have to, if it means following Christ. That may not be, it may not be called of us, but we should be willing to leave everything and everyone else behind if that's what he calls us to do. Our Savior suffered the ultimate. Does that mean that we're going to escape everything? No. No. If he was mistreated, did we, does that mean that we're going to uh, uh, coast through this life and, not, and expect not to be mistreated? Absolutely not. We read on Wednesday night about Stephen, the deacon in Acts chapter 6 and 7. He was a servant of the Lord and a servant to his brothers and sisters in Christ. He was stoned to death for proclaiming the truth of Jesus and even and every one of uh, Jesus' original disciples died a horrific death. You think about James, uh, the, the, one of the sons of thunder, the uh, older brother of the apostle John. He was martyred. Uh, he, he was, he was um, beheaded. In, um, you read about that in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. He was executed in A.D. 44 by King Herod. On the way that, he, in Fox's, Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is a tremendous book, on the way to uh, James's beheading, as he's walking, one of the guards are so overcome with conviction. Did he go, that he stops being a guard, and he goes to James and says, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And he professes faith in Jesus and says, I don't want you to be beheaded alone. Both of them were beheaded that day. Philip, another disciple, was crucified. Matthew was beheaded in Ethiopia sometime around AD 60. James the Less, who was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, he was stoned to death. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Mark was dragged to death by the people of uh, Alexandria for preaching against idol worship. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded in Rome. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was crucified. The apostle Thomas, old doubting Thomas, uh, he was stabbed with spears and thrown into an oven. Luke hung from an olive tree and uh, was hung from an olive tree in Athens, Greece. John was they tried to boil him and that didn't kill him. So they sent him to Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. And then he was released from there and he returned to Ephesus where he died. He's the only original disciple, the only original, the only apostle who did not die a horrible death. And if you look down through church history, our brothers and sisters Many of our brothers and sisters have died horrible, horrible deaths for standing on the truth of the word of God, for being true disciples of Jesus Christ. 
men like William Tyndale, men, men like William Tyndale, who was in opposition to the Roman Catholic Church at that time. And, 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 and I cannot remember the, the, the year, but in, in which he, he lived and was beheaded. It was 1500s, I believe. But the Roman Catholic Church was very, very, very corrupt and would not permit people to read the word of God on their own. You do not know how valuable it is for you to have the access to this thing. To, have, to be able to have it in any type of, in, in, in multiple translations, it'll be, be able to read it like you do a newspaper, to have it into the King James, to, ha- to have it on your phone if you want to, to be able to listen to it, audio if you want to. You do not know how precious it is because there are people that have come before us and people still in, in, in now that do not want the Word of God to get into the common people's hands. William Tyndale, he, he felt called of God to translate the New Testament in the English, he was arrested, imprisoned, and burned at the stake for it. There are men like Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot, called by the Lord to be a missionary. Missionary in places like Ecuador, where you, people don't even realize, you know, so far off and, and, and deserted, that don't even realize people actually live, live there. He was burdened to win this one tribe to the Lord Jesus and in the process of doing so, he and three others were killed attempting to minister to those people. Eventually that tribe was one of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord may not require of us to lose our lives, but we are to be willing to lay it down if he does, which is why Jesus says what he says in verses 24 through 25, that the one who tries to save his life will lose it, and the one who loses his life for the sake of Christ will save it. The Christian walk is costly. It's not easy. It is not easy. And as I was telling a friend of mine as I was talking this past week, I'm actually having to live what I preach. It is costly. It is hard. It is hard to be a born-again Christian. We're, those who pursue a life of ease and comfort and acceptance by the world, that's who the Lord Jesus is talking about. They will lose their lives. They will not save it. On the other hand, those who give up their lives for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel will find it. How does one do that? It all goes back to what do you think of Jesus? What do you think of him? Who is he to you? Because if you do not think rightly of him, you will cling to stuff and you will not cling to Christ. Jesus asked a question uh, uh, in, in, in verse 25. Uh, I like the way that it's, it, it's put better in Matthew 6, verse 26. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Who or what in this world has more value than the Lord Jesus Christ? To have all that the world has to offer Yet not have Christ is to be eternally bankrupt. All the world's goods will not compensate for losing one's soul. Point number three. Verse 26, we see the indignity. The indignity. Look what it says. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. This is a sober warning from Jesus. If we confess him before men, he will confess us before his father. If I say to my friends, I love, I love Jesus. I believe Jesus is the son of God and I'm prepared to follow him no matter what the cost. And if I mean that and I do it, then Jesus will say to the father, that's Jared Austin. He's mine. 
I'm not ashamed of him. But if I'm ashamed of Jesus and I try to and I, I'm, I'm ashamed of him and his words and I hide my I try to hide my faith. I try to have secret faith. I don't want anybody to know lest they think that I'm strange, weird or foolish. And Jesus is going to say, I'm ashamed of him. I'm ashamed of him. If he's ashamed of me, then I'm ashamed of him. It's very difficult in this day to come out and profess to people that you are a true believer, follower, disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said last week, we don't live in a time now where that's a badge of honor anymore. I mean, it truly is. It's, a, it's the greatest thing that, we could, that, that could ever happen to us is to be blood-bought children of God. But to the world, it's a thing to be despised. In a day when every manner of sin is celebrated and paraded in the streets and on movies and music and television shows, everything that's, that's, that's being indoctrinated, the evils that are being indoctrinated to children, uh, the policies that are being forced down people's throat, that, that con- convincing us that they need to take part in the, in the lie, to stand up in front of that and say, you know, I'm a born again child of God. And the word of God says that that is evil. That is sin. And it needs to be repented of. The woke mob will attack you and shut you down and silence you. The words of Jesus are not popular in the eyes of the world. And if you're put on the spot as to do you believe this to be true, how you how are you going to answer? How are you going to answer? How are you going to answer when you're put on the spot in advancement in your company? is going to maybe uh, be on the line of whether or not you, attain, you uh, 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 attend a uh, mirage of a wedding. What if you don't sign that card, you know, putting a blessing on someone's mirage of a marriage and saying, no, I can't do that because I'm a Christian? Will you be ashamed of the words of the Lord Jesus then? How about for, will will you overlook what Jesus says with regard to a particular sin because a friend or a close family member may be engaged with it and you don't want to offend them? Will you be ashamed of Jesus' words there? Because in reality, we should be ashamed of ourselves and our sin. And that drives us to exalt Christ and obey Him and worship Him and praise Him and do so when it's uncomfortable and inconvenient. The shame of our sin and the fact that we have been saved and restored through Christ should drive us to push through what others may think of us. It should drive us to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it to be, what what is there of Jesus to be ashamed of? Perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, perfect virtue, perfect goodness, perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom, perfect compassion, perfect love, perfect mercy, perfect grace, perfect power, perfect justice. What is there to be ashamed of? What is it of this earth that would cause you to cower and say, no, I'm, I'm not one of them. I'm, I, I don't know who Jesus is. That's why the apostle Paul said, I will boast only in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Disciples are people who are not ashamed of Jesus, but they are ashamed of themselves and they come to him in shame to be forgiven. Should I be ashamed of the one who died on the cross to deliver me from my sin? Should I be ashamed of the one who loved me with a perfect love before the world began? 
Should I be ashamed of the one who chose me to, to be my friend and my redeemer? Should I be ashamed of the one who has gone to heaven to prepare a place for me in the Father's house and to receive me to himself and allow me to dwell in his holy presence forever? What is there to be ashamed of? And if it comes down, and it comes down to that, either you're going to be ashamed of yourself and ashamed... You're going to be unashamed of yourself and ashamed of Christ, or you're going to be ashamed of uh, uh, ashamed of uh, yourself and unashamed of Christ. You will either be ashamed of yourself and you'll follow Christ, or you're going to be ashamed of Christ and you're going to follow the world. How can one be ashamed of the God of heaven who wants to be our God? How could I be ashamed of the Son of God who came in the world to die for my sins so that He, may, he might take me, to, take me home to heaven and forever call me His brother? But people do. Sinners, impenitent, unbelieving sinners are ashamed of Jesus. They are embarrassed to accept Him. Not because He lacks noble character, not because He uh, failed to demonstrate the divine power and proof of who He is, but because to be unashamed of Him requires being ashamed of themselves. And as I've said in the last couple of weeks, no one loves me like me. In many people's hearts, many, many, many people's hearts, it is self above all. Self above everything else. That's why Jesus says in, back in verse 33, 23, if you're going to come after him, here is what is required. Deny yourself. Essentially, it means to be ashamed of yourself. Self-humiliation, self-shame, self-hate is the essence of repentance. Self-denying and cross-bearing. Take up your cross daily. Be willing to follow Christ. Shamed over your own sin and thrilled that the Savior has come and forgiven your sins. And out of being thrilled, out of that thrilling, be willing to give your life for Him, even if it means death. Because it certainly means following Him. How do you do it? How do you deny yourself? How do you take up the cross? How do you follow Jesus? How do you be willing to lose everything? Be hated of everyone? How do you do that? How, how, how do you not be ashamed of him? It goes back to the first question. Who is Jesus to you? What do you think of him? It's the question that it determines every other facet of your life. What do you think of him? Who do you say he is? I leave you with the words of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. Is he precious to you? Is he precious to you? Is he precious to you enough to forsake the world and follow him? Is he precious of you enough to let go of trying to control everything and trust him? He's precious unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious. Who is he to you? He should be the precious son of God, the savior, the savior of your soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. How I unworthily tried to unfold it. Father, as we can take further consideration as to what it means and what it looks like to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, to follow you, to be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we have to think rightly.
about your son. We have to know, we have to think rightly and hold him in the right regard. He is the most important one of all. More important than any created thing, any, anything on this earth. More important than any person. That is the most important question that any person can be asked. What do you think of Jesus? Who do you think he is? Who is he to you? And the answer to that is he is the Christ. He is the sent one. He is the son of God, the sinless son of God, the savior of the world, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And it is in that answer that we find the capability, the driving force to take up our cross and follow you, to be willing to suffer if you see fit for that to come to our doorstep, to deny ourselves the temptations of the world, to turn away from the world daily following you, daily denying ourselves. That one-time repentance uh, that... Uh, 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 that brings for our regeneration the salvation of our soul that first initial repentance doesn't always take away the desires of the flesh it may in some cases but for the majority there has to be a daily dying to self my flesh craves this my savior says otherwise help us Lord to take up our cross and to follow you following in the footsteps of Jesus, being obedient children of the Most High God. These things we ask and pray in Jesus' precious, holy, and worthy name. Amen.